infamous day in history. Most infamous day in history. There was actually a couple of people among us who were alive on December 7th, 1941, when Japan bombed Pearl Harbor. Think about that. A day that President Roosevelt said would be a day that will live in infamy. And if it's not Pearl Harbor that comes to mind, it's been said that no other event in the last 75 years in our nation has captivated the American people as much as the assassination of President John F. Kennedy on November 22, 1963 in Dallas, Texas. This was a day that was described as the most infamous day in the history of our great nation. And for some of you, maybe you recall that day. How about some of us, September 11th, 2001, the day that four coordinated terrorist attacks were unleashed on U.S. soil. Now that one, I can actually remember that one. I was around for that one. I can remember where I was when I first heard about it. I can remember the room I was in when I first turned on the TV to see what was going on. It is vivid in my mind. And those are just three examples, and possibly you could think of others that you would consider the most infamous day in U.S. history. But none of them compare to the most infamous day in the history of humanity. Got to take you back a little further. Back over 2,000 years ago. And on that day, the creature took steps to kill its creator. On that day, mankind raised its rebellious fist against the Almighty. On that day, the depraved hearts of humans was fully on display. But, but, it was a day that God had ordained. It was a day that God had ordained. That same day that showed the extreme depths of man's wickedness was the same day that God demonstrated the unsearchable depths of his love. That same day. It was the day that the King of kings, the Lord of lords, our Lord Jesus Christ, he finished his work that he was sent to earth to complete. And that's what we're looking at this morning. If you're a note taker, the title of the sermon this morning is The King's finished work. The king's finished work. We're continuing in our study through the gospel of John this morning, leaving where we left off last time. Jesus has already been on trial. He's been before Pontius Pilate, and he's been sentenced to death. Though Pilate had found no guilt in him, persuaded by the people to crucify him, he sends him to be crucified. If you're a note-taker, we're looking at John chapter 19. If you would open your Bibles there, John chapter 19 this morning, we're going to pick up in the latter half of verse 16 and read through the rest of the chapter this morning. It's a lot of text. We'll go through it together. John chapter 19, starting in verse 16. And again, if you're taking notes, we're looking at five things this morning. We'll look at them briefly. We're looking at the king's fame, the king's fulfillment, the king's family, 
king's forgiveness and the king's farewell. Again, the king's fame, fulfillment, family, forgiveness, and farewell. As I heard many of you turning there to John chapter 19, I want to remind you of the context. John, in this latter half of his gospel, begins to focus upon Christ being king. So as you have John chapter 19 open, which I don't, give me a minute. John chapter 19, I want you to flip back to John chapter 18. Should be a page to the left. John chapter 18, look at verse 33. Pilate is interrogating Jesus, and Pilate enters his, his headquarters, and he calls Jesus to himself, and he says, are you the king of the Jews? This is where John's going to start focusing on the kingship of Christ. He paints this out for us. Scroll down a couple of verses to verse 36. We see an answer from Christ. Verse 36, Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. So what has Jesus declared? Oh, yeah, he's king. He is definitely king. He is a heavenly king. He is the king above all kings, is what he's declaring. And what's the response? We, we said it last time together. He is stripped. He is mocked as a king. He is flogged, whipped with these leather cords that have bone and metal in it, tearing off the flesh from his back, leaving him inches from death, and then brought in front of the people again, mocked as their king, and once again given opportunity to the people to release him. Enough has been done. He's been beaten to the point of death. Let him go. And the people instead say, crucify him, crucify him. Making a mockery of this Jesus. So Pilate then orders him off to be crucified. This is where we pick up in our text this morning. Verse 16, we see, he delivered him over to be crucified, and they took Jesus. This is chapter 19 now. Verse 17, and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. Now, bearing his cross, I do not want you to get the image of something like this that Jesus is carrying. He's carrying the crossbar that would go up on the upright stake, and he's carrying that. Now, remember, his back is wide open, and he's trying to catch, carry this, and you know from the other gospels, Simon of Cyrene is asked to carry it for him. But this is our Jesus right here, bearing his cross, and he's going to a place called Golgotha. Now, I've been to Israel, and I can't tell you if what they showed us was really the one from 2,000 years ago, but I can tell you in a hillside from far away, you see these indentions in a rock that look like eyes, and you see what appears to be a skull in the rock side of why they would call it the place of the skull. Now again, I don't have information from 2,000 years ago if that's the accurate place today, but I'll tell you what, it looks like a place of the skull. We see in verse 18, there they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Think of the three that are being crucified. How many are guilty? Two are known to be guilty. 
one is known, even by Pilate, to be innocent. No guilt is found in him. John doesn't record any of the action of the crucifixion. He just said, there they crucified them. But it is a horrific way to die. To drive hands with stakes into the board. To hang. To put the knees together and bend them. Put a nail through the feet. That you would sink and actually suffocate yourself while hanging on the cross. So to get air, you'd push your legs up to try to get the diaphragm to bring in more air. It was death basically by suffocation. And this is why as we read through this, they would always break the criminal's legs to expedite the, the death, to make them die faster. They can't get any more air. They just fall. And they asphyxiate. There's nothing pretty about this. There's nothing pretty about it. And I understand we put up symbols or even wear jewelry of Christ's crosses to demonstrate our faith in Christ, but that is really a horrific symbol. Because it was a horrific way to die. The cross. We're talking about the king's fame. Where does that come from this text? Read with me in verse 19, starting in verse 19. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. That's his criminal offense right there. That's what they would write above the criminals is what their offense was. What are they guilty of? The king of the Jews. And in verse 20, many of the Jews read this inscription. For the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. Aramaic was the language most widely understood by the Jewish population in Palestine. Latin was the official language of Rome. And Greek was the universal language of the time. Basically, what he's saying is every single person that walked by, many of our pictures show this way up on a hillside. There's three crosses with the sunset behind it, and it's way far off. It was literally like this with you walking by right here. This close that you could read the inscription, what are they guilty of? And you could see what it says. And it's written in every language, so every man, woman, and child would understand that Jesus was being crucified for being the king of the Jews. This is what he was guilty of, the coming king. And that his fame, what his, his notoriety would be known, that this was the king Church, that was our king. That was our king. Our bloodied king who was upon that cross. The Jews didn't like this. They didn't like the inscription of the king of the Jews. Verse 21, it says, So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am the king of the Jews. And Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written not changing. So there before them is the king of kings hanging on a cross with criminals to this side and to this side. The innocent one, the lamb of God on a cross for every man, woman, and child to come by, to wag their finger at, to shake their head, 
to make a mockery of right there, given in their language. Oh, you, Jesus, think you're a king. What a joke. And there the mockery goes. What about the king's fulfillment? We continue reading. We're going to see throughout the rest of the passage in, in chapter 19, over and over again it'll say, so that the scripture might be fulfilled. The crucifixion of Jesus fulfilled many prophecies about the coming Messiah. Things that were written up to a thousand years before he ever came to earth, he detailed the fulfillment of those. We see several of them this morning, including the one about his garments. In Psalm, you don't turn, I'll read it to you, but in Psalm 22, verse 18, about 800 years before Christ ever came to earth, it's recorded that they will divide his garments among them, and for his clothing they will cast lots. Well, guess what we read in John chapter 19? Look with me at verse 23. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. And so they said to one another, let's not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which says they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Okay, so first, the picture you have to understand, Jesus is on the cross without his garments. You follow me? The whole point of this was complete humiliation. To put him up there and to completely humiliate him in his death. But we read here, and John includes purposely, these things happen so that the Scripture might be fulfilled. Well, what does that mean for us? Like, why, why is that important for us? Well, here's one. Church, if God said it, it's going to happen. If God said it, it's going to take place. God is a God who cannot lie, which means he will fulfill his word. Every last thing that he said, he will accomplish through his word. Nothing goes undone. What does that mean for us as believers? It means that we have a hope unlike the world. Even that word hope, the world uses that as wishful thinking. Like, oh, I hope that happens. That's just like I'm wishful thinking. I'm hoping it comes to pass. But not for the Christian. Because our hope is secured. It's not wishful thinking. We have a living hope. Our hope is in the God who accomplished his word, who will fulfill everything that he said. His word is sure. We can trust in it. We can rest in it. And we can rejoice in it. If God has said it, God will do it. And that's a great thing. The king's fulfillment of his word. Thirdly, this morning, the king's family we're going to see. In John chapter 19, continuing in verse 24, we see, so the soldiers did these things, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, this is John's humble way of referring to himself. I love the way, you know, the one who Jesus loved. Jesus then says to his mother, woman, 
behold your son. Now, before anybody gets set off by the word woman, it is a word that's used in a very polite way. It's like a child looking to his dad and saying, yes, sir, or a child looking to his mother and saying, yes, ma'am. This is not any way of just saying, oh, you're just a woman. Okay, so don't put it in our modern-day context. He's saying, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. So what is Jesus? I mean, is he just passing off his mom to John like, hey, man, you got to take care of her now. She's yours. I had to deal with her for so many years. Now you got to deal with her. That is not what's going on. That is not the mindset of what's going on at all. Jesus was instituting a new family that was in him, a union that is in Christ, a kinship that comes from those who are in Christ. But those who are in union with Christ, they're in the king's family, his family. We could sing, we are family all day long, but to be in the king's family, the king of kings, it's a bond that is deeper than any other bond. That we're bound together in King Jesus. You see, and you've heard me say before, Christianity is not a lone ranger faith. If you're somebody who floats in and out of a church and comes whenever you feel like it, you don't understand the faith. Because Christianity is a corporate faith. The scripture says, do not neglect coming together regularly. Why? Because there are things that must occur corporately together. We're a family together. We're in the king's family. We're all members, as the scripture says, of one body. If my arm decided to stay at home today, I wouldn't be able to talk because I'm Italian. Some of you are like, I don't know what that meant, but okay. How do you get Italian to shut up? Tie their hands behind their back. But I got my hands. Christianity is a corporate faith. Christianity through the scripture says we need one another. We need to encourage one another. We need to remind each other of the glories and the goodness of God. We need to exhort each other to encourage to turn from certain things. To be able to see one another's blind spots that we ourselves can't see. That we would point those out to one another. We need one another. And God has given us one another. Everybody is looking to belong. There's a longing within them just to belong. Whatever they get involved in, some young people get involved in, in situations that are just, they're just not healthy. But they're looking for a group of people that would say, you fit in here. The king of kings has created a family. A family that does belong. And a family that satisfies that longing to belong. It's only in the king's family that there's no greater family than that. In this family, we're all equals. So think of any other situation in the world where everybody comes together and are equals. Doesn't matter the race, doesn't matter the, the socioeconomics, doesn't matter of anything. They're one in Christ Jesus in the King's family. You walk outside those doors, that's not out there. There's partiality all over the place. Oh, that person's got money. Let's befriend them. Hey, can you be my friend? or prejudices, and all kinds of things of judgments going against people. But in the king's family, there's neither Jew or Gentile. That we're one in Christ Jesus. One. An amazing thing. Unified together, 
we are the king's family. Fourthly, this morning, the king's forgiveness. This is usually where we like to jump to. Let's talk about the king's forgiveness. In John chapter 19, starting in verse 28, we read, After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, and this is to fulfill the scripture, he said, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of sour wine on the hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Can you imagine being there and witnessing that? Who can do that? Who ends their life by saying anything and saying, it's finished. Bowing ahead and being done. Only God, the one who's in control of all things. But we also see that Jesus, although he was fully and truly man, was also fully God. He's both. He says, I thirst. That's a man's response. I thirst. And do you know why he thirsted? It's not to do with him dying on this cross, of being beaten, losing blood, and everything going on. But the reality of why he thirsted is so that we would be satiated. Sit on that for a second. Jesus thirsted so that we would never have to thirst again. In John chapter 4, verse 14, Jesus said, Whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give to him will become like a spring of water, welling up into eternal life. Jesus thirsted, but we do not have to. Jesus suffered in our place. He gave his life so that we could have eternal life. So when Jesus said, it is finished, I want you to slow down. What do you think he meant? What do you mean by that? Let's not get too deep theologically just yet. He meant exactly what he said. It is finished. It's finished. The question now is, what's the it? What, what's the it? His mission. To seek and to save that which is lost. To give himself a ransom for many. To lay down his life as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. When Jesus said, it is finished, he was declaring our debt paid, our guilt removed, our sin washed away, our forgiveness granted, our hope secured. It is finished, Jesus said. The King of Kings King Jesus, when he was on that cross, before he bowed his head and said, it is finished, he was affording every wretched sinner the way of salvation. Oh, wretched man that I am. Who will save me? This Christ. This King Jesus. It is finished. It's not by any work of ours, no works of our own, but solely by the finished work of of Jesus Christ. Praise God. 
that his forgiveness, the king's forgiveness, is completely based upon Christ's sacrificial death. Look, I know many of you in here, and you know me. And do you know how many of us could earn salvation by our good deeds? Zip. Do you know how many of us could try to do enough good deeds to try to make up for our bad deeds? Zip. If there was another way of salvation, then Christ did not have to die. King Jesus didn't have to go be humiliated, mocked, stripped, put on a cross, and die. If there was any other way that we could just do enough good. But isn't that what people want to do? I just got to get better. I just got to earn God's favor. Friend, you can't. That's why we're looking at Christ going to the cross. Christ is on the cross because we could not do enough good. It is about the king's forgiveness that comes solely through what he has done. It is finished. Lastly, this morning, the king's farewell. The king's farewell we see in verse 31, we'll read to the end of the chapter. It says, since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. I referenced to this earlier. If you want to get somebody who's hanging up there to die quicker, you break their legs so they can't push up and get any more air. So they requested that the criminals have their legs broken. Verse 32, so the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water, most likely a sign of pulmonary edema, this cause of death. It says, he who saw it has borne witness. Who do you think's talking right here? It's John. Again, the one whom Jesus loved. He said, how would I witness to these things? I was there. He says, he who saw it has borne witness and his testimony is true. And he knows that he's telling the truth that you also may believe. This is the whole point why John is writing this gospel. Why he's inspired by the Holy Spirit to record these things is that we would believe that Jesus is the Son of God. And that by believing in him, we would have salvation in his name. That's the whole recording of the cross right here. He says in verse 36, For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of the, his bones will be broken. And together, another scripture says, They will look on him whom they pierced. If you're a note taker, those are referencing Exodus chapter 12, verse 46. Numbers chapter 9, verse 12, and Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10. All prophecies given way before Christ ever came, and Christ is fulfilling them all. And now it's the point to get his body. Verse 38, after these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Verse 39, Nicodemus, also who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloe, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. 
Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there, which means it was a day they could not work, so they wouldn't be able to carry him across town. There was a tomb nearby. They laid him in there. This is the king's farewell, and it's culminated by two followers that were afraid to come out about it. They were afraid of the Jews. They were afraid of getting kicked out of the synagogues. There were those that stood at a distance and didn't really want to be all out for Christ. But guess what? When they saw him be crucified, this innocent man, it caused great boldness in them. These two that would fear before, Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea, that didn't want any of the Jews to know anything, said, we'll go get him. We're done hiding. We're coming out and letting everybody know this is the Christ. This Jesus. They're out of the shadows. They're showing their loyalty to Jesus. And they give King Jesus a farewell in his burial. Not just any kind of farewell, but a kingly farewell. 75 pounds of myrrh and aloe is what they would do for a king. It is a lot of money. And it's how you would properly bury a king. They're showing the proper way. This is Jesus. Right now, we're looking at Scripture. He's laid to rest in a tomb. The Son of God. The God-man who came to save sinners. The King of kings, the Lord of lords, is now laid in the tomb. But the same Jesus prior to that is the one who said, It is finished. It is finished. He says, you don't add anything to it. You cannot add anything to it. There's a story told about a Christian farmer. And it goes like this. There's a Christian farmer, and he's deeply concerned for his non-Christian neighbor. His non-Christian neighbor was a carpenter. And the Christian was trying to explain the gospel to him, especially the sufficiency of the work of Christ, that it is finished. It's done. Christ has paid it all. But the carpenter persisted in believing that he had to do something to get into heaven. There must be something I must do. So one day the Christian farmer asked the carpenter friend to make a gate for him. And when it was finished, he came for it and carried it away on his wagon. He hung it on a fence in his field and then arranged for the carpenter to stop by and to see that it was hung properly. And he's plotting the whole time. Going to get him to come see if this gate's up properly. When the carpenter arrived, he was surprised to see the farmer standing by the gate with a sharp axe in his hand. And the carpenter asked, uh, what's that for? And he said, I'm going to add a few strokes to your work. And uh, what do you think the carpenter said? Perfect. You need that. No, the carpenter responds by saying, but there's no need to do that. The gate is perfect as I created it. Nothing is necessary to be added to it. So the farmer took his axe and started taking some hacks at that gate. The carpenter in tears, look what you've done. Look what you're doing. You've ruined my work. The farmer said, yes, I have. 
And that's exactly what you are trying to do. You're trying to ruin the work of Christ by your own miserable additions to it. And so many people try to do that today. That they think that there's not sufficiency in what Christ has done on the cross. That they must go out and add to it. That I must pull myself up by my bootstraps. I must get right enough, good enough, and then I can present myself to God. No, the only way that you can stand before a holy God is if you're clothed in the righteousness of Christ. He is a holy God. He is a righteous God, and we are not. And the only way to be before him is to be in Christ. When Christ said, it is finished, he was declaring that our debt has been paid fully. Done. God's wrath has been satisfied, that Christ is our propitiation, meaning he gave himself to satisfy the wrath of God that was against us. Christ did it. His sacrifice was accepted. It is finished. We don't add to the sacrifice. We cannot add to the sacrifice. There's only one response to it. The Bible says to repent and believe. What does that mean? It means to turn. You're living in rebellion towards God, to turn to him, to trust in him, to believe that Christ has done it all, that I don't have to get cleaned up enough, I don't have to do enough good works, I need to turn from my way, turn from my lifestyle of sin, and just turn to God. We don't fully understand what that looks like. We don't fully understand it, but it's a heart change of I'm going God's way. And I'm trusting in what Christ has done on the cross. That the king's work is finished. Praise God for that. If you're here this morning, you hear these words of King Jesus who gave himself on the cross for you, realize this this morning. It wasn't the Romans that put him on the cross. It wasn't the Jews that put him on the cross. It was the divine plan of his father to put him on the cross because it was our sins, mine and yours, that he had to go there to pay. Our sins that put him on the cross. It was a demonstration of the Father's love to us to send his only Son to die in our place, that if we would just believe that we should not perish but have everlasting life. That is wonderful news. If you have not repented and believed in King Jesus, now is the time. Today is the day of salvation. Don't say, I'm going to go home and I'm going to think about it. Because we have an enemy of our souls. One who is crafty. And one who likes to deceive. But right now, if the Spirit of God is drawing you to a son, Christ, turn to him. And your heart is going to cry out to him. That today is the day you're going to turn in repentance and trust in Christ and know that it is finished. And have your salvation secure from now into all eternity. That your past sins, your present sins, and your future sins were all paid on that cross. Sounds too good to be true. But we have a good and glorious God. We have a good and gracious God. And we read in Genesis chapter 3 this morning, the fall of man. But here's the redemption. Christ has given us all the riches of God. All that we have in him. 
He said it is finished. Trust and believe in him. Let's pray. Father, in my flesh right now, I, I, I fear that so many of us have been inoculated with the gospel of Christ, where our ears have become deadened to it, where our hearts have become hardened to it, that it is old news and we want to hear something new. God, I know that your spirit can draw a man and woman unto yourself. And God, I pray that you would do that this morning, that anyone in hearing this message today would be drawn to Christ. That they wouldn't try to add to the finished work of King Jesus, but they would just turn and receive the finished work of Christ. That they would be clothed in His righteousness. That they would be filled with His Spirit. They would be given eternal hope that comes only through Christ Jesus. That Jesus is the only way. Father, that they would not be deceived to think that there are many roads that lead to heaven. If that was the case, Christ would not have had to die. Father, I pray this morning that you would save souls in this place. I pray that the angels in heaven would rejoice over one sinner turning in repentance this morning. And Father, you would be glorified in the saints in this room, those who have turned already in repentance and faith, that in their rejoicing in you, in your goodness, in your graciousness, in your amazing love, that you would be glorified. We pray these things in the wonderful name.